Welcome to East Lansing Crime Warp, a podcast hosted by myself, Hannah Brock, and my co-host, Maddie Monroe. Each week, we'll update you on current crime, and then we'll take you back to a crime blast from the past. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. This week, we will be covering the 1986 murder of Jeanette Kirby, but before we get into it, we have a few current crime updates. So recently, an inmate escaped from Ingham County Jail. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so you actually worked with me on this, but I I ended up covering the um, kind of end game of it. So he was captured by police on Saturday, and he initially escaped on the 13th. And it was kind of interesting, I know you know this, they initially wouldn't release the details on how he escaped, but it's very interesting how he did. So he pulled apart his mattress, right? Yep. To like make it look like he was still sleeping and then dismantled a window. Mm Mm-hmm. So they didn't notice he was gone for like a certain period of time, right? Yeah, they do certain bed checks. um, And at first glance, it looked as if he was in his room. So nobody did really further inspection since he'd used the padding from his mattress to look like a sleeping body in his bed. Right. But my question is, like, I'm not sure if you've got to figure this out, but how did they not notice the window was dismantled? I'm not sure. I feel like that would be noticeable, but I don't know how the cells are set up, if it was super visible or not. Right. So I'm unsure on that. Immediately upon escaping jail... He stole a truck, and that was kind of a lead on where he might be. And then on Saturday, an Eaton Rapids local reported that McCurchie was leaving a convenience store in a pickup truck. Now, I tried to contact Ingham County sheriffs, but they didn't respond to me on if the next detail is the same vehicle or the previous one. But local police tried to stop McCurchie. And then he started trying to drive away, and then he crashed in a cemetery, and then he fled on foot. So, can you tell me about the child who went missing? So, about two weeks ago, ELPD asked the community to help them find an 11-year-old boy. His name was Peyton Farner, and they realized he was missing not this past Sunday, but the prior one. And I'm guessing because he's a minor, they didn't really release a lot of details about like how he went missing or why or where they found him. But they did end up actually just giving an update that said he was home safe. So obviously that was a really good thing. Alrighty, so that concludes our current crime updates for this week. Now it's time for the crime blast from the past. On the morning of June 10th, 1986, Jeanette Kirby, a 35-year-old social worker, set out on her routine jog through Ingham County's River Bend Park. When Jeanette didn't arrive to her daily breakfast date with her mother, she was immediately reported missing. She had not shown up for work and was not at home. Two days later, her friend discovered her body on a park path near the Grand River, bound and stabbed. Her clothing had been partially removed and rearranged. One day later, another body was found in the park, a half mile away. However, the woman's body could not be identified she was stabbed as well. To see if the murders were linked, an autopsy was needed. The other body was later identified as Cynthia Ann Miller of Mason, Michigan. Her body was found in the Grand River by canoeists. 
An autopsy found she had been in the water for about three weeks. At this time, no suspects could be connected to either murder. The only evidence left at the scene of Jeanette's murder was her U of M running suit and a pair of flex cuffs that her hands had been bound with. Her running suit had been methodically cut, her shirt had been cut up the middle, and her pants had been sliced apart into squares. The flex cuffs found on her body were the only piece of evidence police had to find her killer. Flex cuffs are similar to zip ties, however those used by law enforcement have a specific metal clasp. Zip ties sold to the public are only plastic. Those used to incapacitate Jeanette had a metal clasp. This discovery concerned local law enforcement, since they could be looking for one of their own. Cynthia's killer was charged and sentenced a year later, while Jeanette's case remained cold for years to come. Four years after Jeanette's murder, police thought they might have a break in the case when a woman in Leland reported a suspicious incident. She had been pulled over on a deserted country road by an unmarked police-style truck with lights and sirens. The man approached her car wearing a police hat, but no uniform. She said he ordered her out of the car and into his truck. She resisted and the man pulled a gun and fired a shot into the air. Then another car drove by and the man retreated back to his truck. This incident caught investigators' interest since the law enforcement details seemed similar to Jeanette's case. A man impersonating a police officer attempting to abduct a woman in a deserted area sounded too familiar. Police rushed to find this man, hoping they could connect it back to Jeanette's case. Law enforcement found that a nearby gas station employee had seen the truck in question, that the man had stopped there for gas and paid with a credit card, using his name, David Dreheim. Dreheim was a 33-year-old factory worker, volunteer firefighter, and former Marine. He had no previous criminal background. At the time of this incident, he was vacationing at his parents' cabin, but lived in Ingham County. When police questioned Dreheim about the incident in Leland, he said he had no involvement. When police searched his vehicle, they found an Ingham County Sheriff's hat, along with two other suspicious items, a knife and a bag of plastic ties, similar to police-style flex cuffs. However, they were not the same style cuffs found on Jeanette, so law enforcement could not connect the case. I think this instance is interesting because of how it was a police officer, like someone impersonating police officer, to try and pull her over and obviously kidnap her. Right. He tried to force her into his truck. Right. He only stopped because another car drove by and he got spooked. Right. So obviously that woman got really lucky. And we've seen the like social media posts where they're like, never stop for an unmarked police car. Right. This is what you do in that situation. Like, honestly, that would be so scary. It would be so scary, especially too, since they said that he had, you know, sirens on the top of his car. It looked somewhat legitimate, right. and especially since this was a pretty deserted area. There wasn't a lot around. I would be terrified to be in that situation. Right, because you don't want to, like, accidentally run from the police. Right, you don't want to be in trouble, but you also don't want to be in harm's way. Alrighty, so back to the story. Jeanette's father died 12 years after her murder without any answers on his daughter's death. Stricken with grief and frustration, Jeanette's mother called Jennifer Granholm, Michigan's attorney general at the time. In response... Granholm sent two investigators to Ingham County. These investigators found what local police had overlooked, 
Dreheim's best friend at the time of the murder, Mark Greco. Greco and Dreheim became friends while working as security guards. Two years before Jeanette's murder, Greco had purchased a used police car. When refurbishing the car, he found a pack of flex cuffs. He tucked one into his security hat and gave the rest to Dreheim. Flex cuffs at this time were made at one factory and used by police officers across the country. Forensic analysts were unable to connect the flex cuffs to those used on Jeanette based on the type of plastic. However, they could look at the unique marks in the small piece of steel on the cuffs. As the steel is cut, unique patterns are made in the metal. By comparing the flex cuffs used in Jeanette's murder to the cuffs kept by Greco, forensic analysts were able to make a pattern match. This minuscule piece of metal was the connection police needed to sentence Dreheim in 2002, 16 years after Jeanette's murder. He had already been serving 40 years in federal prison for kidnapping charges. During Dreheim's trial, a surprise witness testified. His ex-wife said that he often jogged with a pack of flex cuffs around his waist. She also said he had flex cuffed her years earlier. Today, Dreheim, now 64 years old, is serving his sentence at Saginaw Correctional Facility. His earliest release date is set for January of 2050. Okay, so in 2050, that would put him at 94 years old. So I would say that that's pretty much a life sentence. Basically. Right. Right. I guess what I found most interesting about this case is that one of the forensic files investigators that were interviewed said that this was purely a crime of opportunity. It wasn't, they they could not find any other connection right. between Jeanette and Dreheim. It just happened that she was at the wrong place at the wrong time. She was totally just a victim of opportunity. Which is what makes it so scary. Yeah, definitely. I mean, same thing with how he got caught. He just decided to pull over a car. Right. And if it was a woman, then he's going to try and abduct her. Right. There was such minimal evidence in this case. It was really hard for investigators to find anyone who connected to it at all. It just so happened that his Dreheim's friend had a flex cuff still in his security guard hat that they were able to use. From like more than 10 years before. For a long time before, which what are the chances that that happens? That's crazy to me. Right, like why wouldn't you take this one piece of plastic and just throw it out? Right. And I think another interesting part of this case is how they proved it. Like, I feel like when we think about a case, you know, DNA evidence, blood, it's usually someone who maybe knows you or they can figure out that they live near the place that you were murdered or something like that. And this was just completely random. So it was kind of crazy because it was just that teeny tiny piece of metal that they could analyze for patterns. And the investigators on the show were saying, um, just one of our sources was Forensic Files, was saying that it was almost too lucky because the flex cuff in Greco's hat and the flex cuff used on Jeanette were almost perfect matches from when they had been cut. They would almost argue that they had been cut consecutively, Mm -hmm. which is like beyond crazy to me. Not to mention like 
to think about how far investigations have come. You know, it's more than just eyewitness accounts in DNA or blood type Mm -hmm. or something like that. It's down to the patterns on a teeny tiny piece of metal. And then her mom just got kind of fed up and was upset that Jeanette's father had died without any answers. She took it upon herself to call the Michigan Attorney General. Get a hold of her, first of all, which is hard, like, to get actually in contact with the Attorney General to kind of sway her and explain to her what had been going on. Right, and it, it was the fact that she did that that really solved this case because previous investigators had overlooked Greco completely. They hadn't interviewed him at all. Right, and that was the smoking gun. Like, without Greco, they have no case. Right. And without Jeanette's mother, without her mother's care and her diligence, again, no case. It's almost a miracle that they really? figured it out in the way that they did because... They had no eyewitnesses to Jeanette's murder. So, I mean, what were they going off of? Nothing. Plus, her body had been exposed to the elements for two days mm-hmm. in June. So, it's hot. And, right. I mean, nothing's going to be preserved in hot right. weather. It's not like it was cold outside. Right. Yeah, Forensic Files said that they could not determine if she had been sexually assaulted. Um, but she had been stabbed three times in the chest. Right, and then her throat was slashed as well, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's just, like, a really creepy case because just imagining, you know, you're going on a run. Like, this is almost why I hesitate to, like, go on a walk by myself, you know? And, again, we're running into the fact that we're covering women. Yeah, and now a woman who just happened to be running that morning. Right by chance and he saw her and killed her right and then investigators were talking about how they think he must have just been waiting in like the brush right just waiting to watch somebody walk by and see if he could take them down yep not to mention on his otis file he is six six and nearly 300 pounds he is a large man he is tall He's got some weight to him. Right. Like, he could... This is awful, but he could take down pretty much anyone. Mm Mm-hmm. So, that's what makes it even scarier because, I mean, they think that he just came up behind her, pushed her down, and flex-cuffed her. And he must have had this kind of fantasy to do this to someone because he just jogged around with it on his waist. Yeah, his wife testified that he would carry a pack with him when he would jog with flex cuffs in them. Right, like, why else would you need that? You're jogging. Yeah, what circumstance would you need that? And also, a bunch of them. Right. Like, if you were kind of scared that you needed to protect yourself, wouldn't you bring, like, a pocket knife? Right. Or something? Pepper spray? I always do. Right, I carry pepper spray. But, like, you know, something like that, not flex cuffs, because you would have to, like, manhandle someone to subdue them. And how many times do you think to yourself, I should really bring some zip ties with me when I go and do this? Never. Never. It's just, it's odd. I don't know. I mean, I would almost equate it to, like, driving around with, like, a blender or, like, something (laughs) weird like that. Like, what are you doing? Right. Why? So, I mean, honestly, to me, that 
that evidence, his wife saying that he had also like tried to flex cuff her before. It really was kind of the nail in the coffin in the case. Right. This is him. Right. This has to be him. Right, because what kind of, you know, predator just carries around handcuffs? Like, that's horrifying. And how awful would you feel as Greco to be like, oh, I thought these were cool, found them in my reef, you know, I'm refurbishing this car, gave them to my buddy because I don't need them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he had said that they were tucked down, like, in the side of the car in the trunk. Mm-hmm. So obviously when police had cleaned out the car to sell it, they just overlooked it. They didn't see them. I think it's odd that he only kept one. I think it was kind of like he said, he was talking about how he's kind of like a memento mm-hmm. type of person. So I think he just thought it was cool right. that he like had something from right. the police that no one else is supposed to have. Right, and something you know? to like remember with the car. Like, oh yeah, I got this when I bought the car that I refurbished. Right. Like, he was the kind of person who just kind of kept everything, he said. And police were lucky enough that he decided to take the hat, preserve it in, like, a nice box, Mm -hmm. and just stick it in the basement so he could just bring it right back out when police needed it. Yeah, if he hadn't have had it, there would be no case. And then it was also pretty sad that they figured out the other girl's case. After she, her body had been submerged in water, for, for three weeks, right? Three weeks. So it would have been pretty deteriorated at that point. Yeah. And they still figured out her case a year later. Mm-hmm. And then... Which have, which was unrelated to Jeanette's. Yeah, completely unrelated, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I don't know, opportune place to murder people. I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. Just a freaky case depended on this one little teeny tiny bit of evidence... Teeny tiny little piece of steel solved her murder. Right, and it's also kind of sad because he was a veteran. Mm-hmm. He was a mar- he was next marine. He was a volunteer firefighter. Um, in forensic files, when they questioned Ingham County Sheriff's Office about him specifically, they knew him. He was like the town good guy. He was a good person. Nobody really thought of him as someone who would commit a crime like this if any crime i mean with that kind of upstanding reputation with this sheriff's office like the sheriff's office doesn't really know who people are right so he must have been really on their good side and that's some ted bundy like stuff Mm -hmm. like oh town good guy right this guy's nice he's smart he does good things Plot twist, he's a murderer. Right. That's what I hate. It's crazy. That's what I hate about this case because, I mean, I know we've had cold cases before that we've discussed and there's been crimes of opportunity and all that kind of stuff. But this one especially freaks me out because it plays on my fear of getting pulled over by an unmarked police vehicle. And then it's just this gigantic dude. Right. Like, you have no chance at that point. 6'6 and nearly 300 pounds. I mean, maybe he weighed less at the time of the crime, but he was still 6'6. That's really tall. That's so tall. I would be immediately scared. That's more than a foot taller than me. If a 6'6 large man approached me while I was running through the woods alone, 
Right. I would be scared. Right. Alrighty, so that concludes episode five of East Lansing Crime Warp. We hope you've enjoyed this story and we look forward to telling you more. Right.